There's a sense as we go into these scriptures in the latter part of the Gospels, every time we get to these sections, you know, we take a, a piece of what's happening. And as I've mentioned before, the Gospel of Mark, is, it's like this giant funnel of time. In the first few years of Jesus' ministry are covered you know, over a, a few chapters, and then you get down and a few chapters cover a few months. And then a few chapters cover a few days, and at the very end, it takes chapters and sections to cover moment by moment. It's a a gigantic slowdown in what's happening. And it is so intense and it is so deep what we see Christ doing here uh, that I pray that you will be praying that, that God will open our eyes and our hearts to what he is accomplishing, what he is doing. The, the, the hymns this morning, as we sang about our Christ and then thinking about what happens in these scriptures this morning, um, never lose fact. And, and I know, I'm confident most of you don't. But never lose fact that this Jesus was a real man. That he was flesh and blood like we are. Not in necessarily any more handsome or taller or shorter or different in any astounding way. The scriptures tell us that. He came as a man. He didn't come as a superman. He came as a man in flesh and blood. But he came as God at the same time. And he endured these things we sing about. He endured what we read about. And let us, let us grow in our love and appreciation for this magnificent, amazing, one-of-a-kind Savior. This man, Jesus. In the very wee morning hours of Friday, perhaps 1 a.m. or so, Jesus was arrested by a torch-carrying mob made of soldiers, religious leaders, and servants. And they were armed with clubs and with swords. And the location was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was at the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. First of all, he was taken to the home of the former and still influential high priest Annas. There they held a preliminary hearing. Very little was accomplished. Jesus was then roughly taken to the current high priest Caiaphas, where the 71-member Sanhedrin had been assembled for another form of trial. Under repeated lying and inconsistent testimony, These religious rulers had their way and they condemned Jesus to death. That's all they wanted of this whole episode was to get to that point. Everything else was a charade. It was a sham to that point. And they got to it. He was sentenced to death on the charge of blasphemy which for any other man who has ever dwelt on the face of the earth it would have been so. But sadly for them They charged the one man that has ever existed on this planet with blasphemy of whom it could not be said. Because he was God. And we spoke last night. These stories, these truths are so important. Whether it's speaking with a a group of Muslim men in Old Town or, or speaking to your neighbor that may be Mormon or may be agnostic or whatever it might be. The truth is, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and he lived on this earth and he died of his own will and accord, was buried and resurrected, conquering death. 
Remember Jesus, study Jesus, know him, and proclaim him wherever you may be able to. These religious rullers at Caiaphas' place had their way. They condemned Jesus to death. And that second trial ends at somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning. Approximately in that neighborhood. Jesus was then beaten and mocked and held prisoner until when? Where we come in this morning. The first light of day. The first light of day on Friday. There the third and final mockery of a trial would be taken place under the leadership of the Sanhedrin again. Now I want to pick up from a few weeks ago what happened at the final trial before Jesus was thrown into the hands of the Roman legal system that we read about this morning. So let's back up just a little bit to Mark chapter 14 and follow along beginning with verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death but found none. For many bore false witness against him but their testimonies did not agree. And then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Then again the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. A few hours have passed since that. And we read in verse 1 this morning. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. We will read here of the most amazing response to the accusers in Matthew 15, 1-5. In John, the Gospel of John, John wrote, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The sole purpose of this final assembly of the Sanhedrin is to create a case for crucifixion. They are intent, they are focused, they must have a case for crucifixion. We read here, typically in Mark's fashion, immediately, in the morning, there is an urgency. It's kind of a trademark we've seen of Mark throughout the gospel. Everything's happening straight away, immediately, right away, this happened. And this is where Mark goes. And it's great for him to communicate in this way at this moment because that's what's happening. Everything is getting piled up into each moment, each hour, and, and these hours are so full. The trial had to be first thing in the morning, as soon as daylight appeared. For by Jewish law, what, what did we say a few weeks ago? By Jewish law, an execution verdict of a trial by night was invalid and illegal. 
They could not be doing these things, but they had done them. And yet, in some sort of compromising, hypocritical way, they will meet now at daylight and pronounce the verdict. Some historians also maintain that Roman legal proceedings began at dawn. And they were completed usually by mid to late morning. If the religious leaders wanted anything to happen regarding Jesus, they had to be there when the court opened or they were out of luck. For these reasons, the chief priests convened their final meeting early in the morning, rounding up all of the religious decision makers in the city. And especially those 71 men who sat on the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Judah. Now included the chief priests. And I've repeated these things a few times, but... But I want you all to remember these. Uh, when, when we're going back through these, when you have opportunity to speak and read to your children, uh, your grandchildren, to your friends, know these things. The chief priests, who were they? They held the power strings of the Sanhedrin. They were by and large Sadducees. Then we also had the scribes. They're also called experts in the law, sometimes referred to as lawyers. And they were composed usually of the Pharisees. So you had, again, the competing forces of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who couldn't stand each other until this moment, as we've looked at several times, when they combined in their unity to kill this man, Jesus. So you had the chief priests, you had the scribes, and it says the elders. And who were the elders? They were the wealthy, they were the very influential, but non-priestly families in Jerusalem. As we say today, money talks. Money buys influence. And these men were there because they were wealthy. That's what made up the Sanhedrin. And they have gotten together to have this consultation. If you look in Matthew chapter 27 verse 1, it says, They plotted against Jesus. Now details of that final consultation, their plotting, are found in Luke. Please turn to Luke chapter 22. And the Gospels give us several different perspectives, views of what's happening in these hours. And we're not going to go into depth in each of the Gospels' presentation. But we're going to try to keep some of this in view as we go through. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask, also ask you, you will by no means answer me, or, or you will not let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You Rightly say that I am. And they said, well, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And now we look at the madness of the men. They've established that Jesus is making the claim for who he is. The Son of God. He is the Messiah. He says that confidently. And what do they do? The imagined power of men. Look at this madness. Mark emphasizes this by a threefold use of verbs indicating submission. Look what he says there. He says, Jesus was bound, he was led, and he was delivered. It's as if these men truly had power to contain the one who sustains the entire planetary system, the solar system, uh, the universe in which we live, every star that's in its place, every comet that comes streaking through, every ant that crawls across 
the road. And these men bind him. And they take him. And they lead him away. They deliver him to Pilate. What folly. What folly that they think they have. And brothers and sisters, I read this. I thought, how much folly do I have so often as I consider the import, my self-importance of what I can do or what I can't do. And rather than to rely on the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, I fret, I fear, I take advantage of situations rather than trust in God. Now these men were kind of the extreme. I've never tried to bind or lead or deliver God anywhere. But in many ways I exemplify the same thing with my self-centered, my self-confidence, my self-reliance. This God is not to be trifled with and yet he allows these men to do this because this is his plan. This is his will. Their strategy is revealed now. The strategy of the leaders is they hand over Jesus to Pilate. This is essentially a transfer of authority to Rome. In John 18 verse 28 we read, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Is this not the pinnacle of hypocrisy? The chief priests do not want to defile themselves for the Passover celebration, for the dinner, by stepping on Gentile ground. While at the same time they are mocking, beating, and seeking to kill God in the flesh. The Passover lamb. The lamb that takes away the sins of the earth, of the world. You see the difference, the, the conflict, the irony of that situation. But there is necessity here. Rome must intervene. It is important that Rome gets involved at this moment. In John 18 verse 31 we read, Then Pilate said to them, Well you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Now we know as we look through the New Testament that the Jews did not hold fast to that regulation. We've seen them. Stone men, kill men, that were out of line with what they believed. Apostles, representatives of God. But in this particular instance, it is very important that Rome become involved. You see, Jews were not legally allowed to carry out capital punishment. And when they did, it was not by crucifixion. When they could, they executed by stoning. But prophetic scripture of the killing of Christ describes crucifixion, not killing. I mean, not stoning. Crucifixion, Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9, we have the story of the people of Israel. Then these snakes have come in, they've been, beaten, been bitten by the snakes, and many are dying. And there comes a point when God speaks to Moses and tells him to raise up this bronze serpent on a pole, and all that look upon that will be healed. And that is symbolic, it is a picture, it is a type of what would happen with Christ on the cross to come. But then we also have in the book of Psalms, chapter 22, verses 12 through 18, one of, one of the most graphic, prophetic descriptions of the crucifixion of any of the Psalms. Psalm 22, we see quotes from Jesus there, we see things being carried out, but we will look at verses 12 through 18 in Psalm 22. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. But if you go to Zechariah 12 verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Pictures, types of the crucifixion that was to come. But Christ himself, Christ himself specifically says that he will be crucified. I'm sure the disciples went, how in the world will he get into that much trouble with Rome? How will that happen? We see him running into, into problems with the Jews, but how will he ever be on a cross? And, and I don't know that they thought about it very long because it seems like that wasn't really, they weren't really tracking with Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says specifically that he will be crucified. In John chapter 12, 32 through 34, again, Jesus says specifically, prophesying that he will be crucified. <clears throat> Secondly, Roman intervention, or at least an apparent Roman involvement, was important in order to get the monkey off the back of the Jewish leaders. You see, if Jesus did prove to be as popular as they feared, and the people stood up for him, it would be very, very handy to be able to blame this all on Rome. To accuse them of interfering with Jewish religious matters. So if they can get Rome involved, they can get him crucified, they can get the, the blood off of their hands and put onto Rome. While Jesus' own people did not receive him, we know in verse, I think it's verse 4 in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. So his own did not receive him, and now we will look at the world that did not know him. You see, while the Jewish leaders knew and hated Jesus very much, the Roman world, represented by Pilate in this account this morning, was largely ignorant to him. Pilate begins his investigation of the accused by confirmation of the charge. He wants to confirm the charge that's been made. There are other charges being leveled at Jesus, but this one that he mentions is a particular concern to Rome. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. Now, I want to focus on that, that word here. It's, it's a bit different than what we read. If you look, many of your translations will show it is as, or a few of the words before this, in italics, meaning they weren't contained in, in the original manuscripts. Literally, it says, Jesus says, you say. In the King James, it says, thou sayest it. In the ESV, it says, you have said so. And in the New American, it says, it is as you say. The legacy standard says, you yourself say it. It's not easy to understand precisely what Jesus was saying. And interestingly, 
Jesus becomes amazingly silent from chapter 15 verse 1 to about verse 34 when he is on the cross at the last moments of his life. In the Gospel of Mark, this is all we say. Now, some of the other Gospels will give more content of what Jesus said at those times. But Mark is intent on pointing this out. That really, he did not respond. He did not respond in defense or in seeking release at any point in this time. It is the word here, though, when he says, you say. It's lego. And this is the only recorded word here in, the, in 15 until I, where I mentioned. But some of the other gospels show this. But I wanted to tell you what this one fellow said. His name is Lane. He's, he's a commentator. And he wrote this. He said, Jesus responded affirmatively to Pilate's question whether he was the king of the Jews. But with a reservation which hinted that his own conception of kingship did not correspond to that implied in the question. In other words, what's happening here is Pilate is using the right words and doesn't know what they mean. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus looks at him and says, you say. He is. But kingship of the Jews in the mind of Pilate is a political matter. Kingship of the Jews in the matter of Christ is the lordship of the people of God, the coming Messiah who would set his people free. And then the chief priests, it says here, accused him of many things. He answers Pilate, and the priests are standing around, and they begin to accuse him. They shower him with these things, and he answers nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, and he says to him, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? And then we see Christ's commanding silence. That is not a common way that we handle these situations as men. Christ, though, commands the situation with silence. Again, the assault on Christ is led by the chief priests. They are the ones who have so far lost the most because of this intruding, troublemaking, wannabe Messiah. They also stand to lose a whole lot more if someone doesn't stop him. Be sure they are fully motivated and leading the way in this travesty of justice. The priest's actions are described here as accusing Jesus of many things. One of the verses says, harshly accusing him. Well, if there are many things, what were the things that they were accusing of Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it tells us. It reads there, and they began to accuse him, saying... And there's three accusations that are brought up here. We found this fellow, one, perverting the nation. That means misleading, perverting, turning away. They are saying, he is a troublemaker for you Romans. Secondly, that he is forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And we know absolutely that that is not the case, for he has commanded taxes to be paid to them who should be paid to he made that explicitly clear in his teachings. But that doesn't sound good when you're standing before the Roman governor. And a third one, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And that's the one that Pilate brings forth. There was a torrent, a torrent of venomous testimonies and verbal attacks spewed out on Jesus by the chief priests. But Jesus wisely and peacefully answers nothing. Think who is standing there. There is nothing in jeopardy for him. Nothing 
hangs precariously in the balance. He is God in the flesh. If he desired, he could verbally tie them up in knots. He could physically physically incinerate them instantly and cast their souls into hell eternally. He has no need to justify himself before this mob, nor has he any desire to do so. Verse 5 says, But Jesus still answered nothing. So the Pilate marveled. Some says he was amazed. Pilate looks on and is deeply impressed. He literally felt admiration for Jesus. And I doubt that that had ever happened in the life of him as a governor and as a judge. He marveled. He, he marveled at Jesus. He was amazed, not because of Jesus' ability to defend himself, or his superior verbal skills, or his aggressiveness, or his quick-witted responses. That had nothing to do with it. Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Doesn't sound like us, does it? How unlike us. When we are accused, especially wrongly, we so badly want to defend our honor. We want to set the record straight. We want to be understood. Are we ever content to let God have the final say for us? Justice and fairness are considered inalienable rights for many of us. Why and how did Jesus respond so differently than we do? That's a great question, and there is an answer to that question. It was read earlier this morning by one of the men. Please turn in your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. What motivated Christ to have such an amazing, marveling response? Verse 18 reads, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. We better get that one memorized. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So we have been given the commands here. Now, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, He did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Underline that if you're of a mind to do that. Committed himself to him who judges righteously. That is the key, brothers and sisters. Christ's life, as he stood before Pilate, was fully committed to him who judges righteously. And the scriptures tell us that. He who himself 
bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sin might live for righteousness, by his stripes you were healed. If you think that Christ standing before Pilate is an example of unfairness and injustice. What do you think it is when he takes on all the filth of your life unto himself as the innocent man who had never sinned and placed himself on the cross and endured the punishment and the grief and the separation from his father? Death he endured for us. So when he withstands this before Pilate, it is unjust, it is unfair. But what he does on the cross is a beautiful, powerful, unfair accomplishment for those he loves. Jesus is so amazing. When a man or woman commits themselves to God who judges righteously, he or she will live in a manner that will amaze this world. Let me read that again. When a man or woman commits themselves to God who judges righteously, he or she will live in a manner that amazes this world. Do that. Bring glory to Christ by trusting in Him. A deep and sobering insight was offered by a commentator by the name of Guillet. And he wrote, At this point, Jesus has, what Jesus has done is stop speaking to men since he no longer has anything to tell them. Now he is turned toward God but no longer needing to bear witness to him or asking to be championed before men. This is very different from prophets and martyrs. They die to give testimony. They invoke him for whose name they suffer. They proclaim his excellence and grandeur. Jesus no longer speaks about God but to him. Jesus no longer speaks about God, but to him. Now between verses 5 through 5 and 6, another event happens that's in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, in chapter 23. Please turn there if you would. You see, in the meantime, one of the chief priest's accusations against Jesus happened to contain a single word that grabs the attention of Pilate. Luke chapter 23 Beginning with verse 5. But they were the more fierce, the uh, religious leaders saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. At this point in the trial, you see that Pilate is looking for every way out that he can find. And we're going to look at a few more in just a moment. But this is one that pops up and, oh, let me send him to Herod. Now when Herod saw Jesus, verse 8, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him. Because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, 
For previously they had been at enmity with each other. Isn't it interesting how Jesus brings Sadducees and Pharisees together. Herods and Pilots together. Men who have hated each other. But when they hate Jesus, they come together in that unified evil, that wickedness. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Then we come to this next verse, verse 6. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. This is another potential escape route for Pilate. It is an accommodation born out of appeasement. He wants to satisfy the crowd somehow in this whole thing. In verse 6, is when that opportunity arises. It is an escape opportunity for Pilate, and it's involving a custom. It was a custom that was a public display of Roman mercy. Each year at Passover, the governor would fully release the people's choice of a prisoner to complete freedom. Not partial freedom, not purchased freedom. It was a freebie. It wasn't a prisoner swap or a payoff of any kind. And it was for the benefit of the people and especially for the prisoner. Now, verse 7 tells us who the candidate for freedom was. And in your outline it says swap. It should be freedom. Because this wasn't a swap. This is a full out freedom. Verse 7 says, And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed murder in the rebellion. We see five aspects about this man. His name is Barabbas. That translates as son of a father. Remember when Christ cries out, Abba, Father. Father, Father. It's, it's a tender, uh, more of a personal, intimate word about the Father. This man, Bar, son of Abba, Father. He is chained. He is imprisoned. He is currently incarcerated under bondage. Thirdly, he is with his fellow rebels. Barnabas, excuse me, Barabbas did not work alone. He is being held along with the other guys who had committed the same heinous crimes. And they had, fourthly, committed murder. So this is a man who belongs to a very violent criminal gang. And they were participants in the rebellion or in the insurrection, an uprising. An insurrection would be Barabbas and his guys taking up weapons against Rome to force independence for the Jews. He is a rebel against the Roman rule. Matthew 27 Verse 16 says he is a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And then we read in verse 8 here that the multitude crying aloud went up or they moved toward or they advanced toward Pilate. They're beginning to put pressure on him. And he begin, they begin to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. It's almost reading like word got out to the chief priests about Pilate's strategy. And the crowd begins to press Pilate down this route, both Pilate and the multitude liked the idea of enacting this tradition of the gift of freedom for one of the prisoners. But quickly, we see a very distinct difference between the intention of Pilate and the intention of the crowd and the chief priests. Pilate answers them and saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What is Pilate's strategy here? 
hoping to use some power of suggestion to influence the people. He offers what he seems to believe will be an obvious and easy choice, a shoe-in. Wouldn't you like me to release to you your king, the king of the Jews? Now, why is Pilate trying so hard here? Why does he care? Let me suggest three possibilities. There are at least three reasons why the case of Jesus has become increasingly important to him. First of all, the innocence of the accused. If you go back to Luke chapter 23, many of you are probably still there. If you look at verse 4, So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Then if you go to verse 14, He said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. Verse 15, No, neither did Herod. Then on in verse 15, And I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And then if you go on to verse 22, we read, Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Five proclamations of not guilty. So one of his big hang-ups here is this man is like no other man he's ever seen. He's never had a man stand before him who truly is completely not guilty. But this man is so different. And he can find nothing wrong with him. Secondly, Pilate's wife had a dream. His wife's dream. Matthew 27 verse 19 says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So you have the innocent of the accused, you have the wife's dream, and then you have Pilate's own precarious political position. Pilate's role as a governor of Judea was by no means a plum job. It was not highly sought after. It was rather a stepping stone to more pleasant surroundings somewhere else and an easier to govern people than these hard-headed Jews. But Pilate had stuck it out for 11 years from AD 26 to 37, And along the way, he blundered into numerous political errors, preventing him from ever advancing or going anywhere else. As one commentator noted, and I'll give you three here. First of all, he invited the legions of Rome to enter Jerusalem in the temple area with banners that proclaimed the Roman Caesar, which was seen as blasphemy to the people of Israel. Secondly, on another occasion, he built an aqueduct, a 23-mile aqueduct that brought water down to the people in Jerusalem. That was the good news. The bad news is that he confiscated money out of the temple treasury to build that aqueduct, and the people resented that sorely. A third time, another time, Pilate ordered his soldiers to ambush a number of Samaritan worshipers and slaughter them. And the Samaritans appealed to Rome on behalf of their people and, and what this man had done. But eventually, he would be fired by their emperor Caligula and he never again was allowed to govern. Pilate was often cold and cruel, but he was no stranger to politics. Look at verse 10. For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He had witnessed the man Jesus facing his accusers. Pilate now was well aware that the Jewish leaders had not turned Jesus in and made these accusations out of their love and loyalty to Rome. 
It was obvious that their motivation was a personal envy of Jesus for many things. As one writer put it simply, He performed miracles they could not. He proclaimed truth they did not. He was from God and they were not. They envied Him on a multitude of different levels. But in Pilate's mind, only four days earlier, a large throng of admirers, in fact worshipers, thousands of them, had hailed Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. They had laid their cloaks and their robes down on the road, and his donkey that he was riding walked over them. They waved palm branches, symbolic of the welcoming of the Messiah. And they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! This was the one they had hoped for for centuries. Surely, thought Pilate, these common folks would not turn against their proclaimed Messiah and choose a murderous rebel. The influence of the chief priests had been strong, but but Jesus appears to have won the people's heart. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he, Pilate, should rather release Barabbas to them. And we don't know how the priests were able to change the people so quickly and so completely. But it certainly proved Pilate's insight. He knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. And there's a strong irony here. Here is Barabbas, an insurrectionist. He had attempted to give political freedom to Judah by the use of force and violence. Jesus, on the other hand, offered them spiritual freedom by commanding they take up their cross and follow him. Radically different approaches. Barabbas may have actually been a hero to many in Jerusalem because he opposed Rome, which many had hoped Jesus would do. Perhaps it really wasn't so hard to turn the people's hearts toward a violent folk hero rebel when the one they thought would be their Messiah King is standing before them. And he is standing before them bloodied, bruised, beaten, covered with blood and spit. And he is the king. Perhaps it wasn't such a difficult change to to take place. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? What then do you want me to do? He is caving to the crowd. In this moment, as is often the case, Forfeiting responsibility actually equals forfeiting opportunity. He gives up what was his responsibility and now his opportunity is gone. And they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. What evil, what harm has he done to anyone? How has he injured anyone? That's the word evil. What, what could possibly be a reason for putting him to death? But this Friday morning of Roman interrogation has simply resulted in an execution sentence with no criminal charge. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 25 read, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And in these final hours before Jesus' crucifixion, a very dark 
and damning threefold declaration was made by the people of Judah. Listen to what they said. Matthew 27, 25. The declaration of generational guilt toward Christ. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. They had no idea what they were saying. Secondly, a declaration of rejection of Christ. But they cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! And thirdly, a declaration of allegiance with the world. Pilate said to them in John chapter 19, verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. You, you couldn't have made them say that at the point of a sword. But they would say that because they hated Christ. The conclusion of the three trials of Rome, twice before Pilate and once before Herod, sandwiched in between, is what we read in Luke 23, 23. But they, the people, were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. That's who won the day. We see so much about this courageous, confident, father-trusting man, Jesus. And I would challenge you to look at him over and over and over again. And allow him to, to speak to you in his word. To show you who he is. But for, for me, one of the things I want to encourage specifically, specifically is to look at that 1 Peter 2, 18, 24 through 24 in closing. I think it is so crucial for the days that lie ahead. It may be tomorrow at your workplace that you're called on the carpet for something that, that's unfairly done to you. It may be one of your siblings. It may be a spouse. It may be extended family. It may be a neighbor who's making these accusations. How are you going to respond? Is, is the first response going to be a quick defense? Or let me clear my name. Or, or you don't understand. And, and I'm not saying that there isn't a place to speak the truth in love and to try to try to bring these things out. But if you really want to amaze people, entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously, knowing that whatever happens, it is in His hand. And you will amaze the world. And not so that they will think, boy, Keith, Brad, Jarvis, Linda, April, you're amazing. No. So that they would look and see, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. And perhaps they will come and seek him. If they don't, you've still glorified the name of Christ. Let me read that passage again in closing. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 24. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Focus in right now. Verse 21. For to this you were called. You were called. Because Christ also suffered for us. You are called because Christ suffered for you. Leaving 
you an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, this is the example, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your example. I just feel so uh, inadequate to, to show the magnificence of who you are. How can we ever grasp the totality of God in the flesh standing before a puny Roman governor, a failure of a governor, and being condemned to death. Allowing men like myself to spit on you and, and slap you and beat you and lead you around like a dog. Oh, your long-suffering, your kindness, your purpose, purposefulness and your humility to be brought to that cross for us is overwhelming, Lord. Please allow the men and women, myself included, of this assembly to understand you and know you more and more. Teach us, Lord. Overwhelm us, amaze us, and fill us with your spirit that we can show this world who you are. In your name we pray, amen.